Welcome to the Marion Road Christian Church Podcast. Marion Road exists to glorify God through worship, sharing the good news, making and developing disciples, and serving others. When I was in uh, high school, I had a psychology class, and at one point in that class, we had a group project where we were essentially told you're stranded on a desert island with the four people that you are in this group with. Get together and come up with a plan for how you're going to survive until someone comes to find you. And I was in a group with a few of my friends, and the day came where we were supposed to present in class You know what, what we had come up with, our solutions that we had constructed, and a, and a bunch of teenage boys essentially said, well, you know, we think that if each of us just have one defined task each and every day, we're going to get burned out on that. Like if, if your only job is to collect firewood, eventually you're going to get sick of collecting firewood. And so we're just going to kind of share the load and we're going to rotate and, and that way everyone, uh, you know, gets to experience everything. No one gets burned out on any one specific task. And our teacher in that class actually had become a teacher after retiring from a career in the army. And so he was not exactly impressed with a bunch of teenage boys saying, "Eh, none of us really need to have any authority or responsibilities or anything. We'll just kind of make it up as we go. And it seems like sooner or later, you, you reach a point where someone has to be in charge. Someone has to have power, whether it's in a high school psychology class or life in general. And at least part of the reason why that seems to be the case is that it is ingrained within creation itself. When you read the first few chapters of the book of Genesis, God creates Adam and Eve. He puts them in the Garden of Eden to partner with him in ruling over and caring for his creation. God delegates this power to humanity, to Adam and Eve, to partner with him in ruling over all things. Leadership, authority, power, it is a tool created by God designed to help lead to human flourishing. And When you're faced with difficulty, it's good to have someone who can be a, a leader, When someone can come in and take charge of a situation, that's not always a bad thing. Whether it's a new coach taking over uh, your favorite team, the Vikings got a new defensive coordinator this year, good luck with that. Uh, It's voting a new politician into office, whether it's a new boss taking over your company, whatever it is, there's a sense of optimism that comes when you have a good leader taking charge. And yet we also know that putting the wrong person in charge can cause all sorts of problems. Uh, My grandpa Merle worked construction for essentially his whole career, and I don't remember why, but at some point when my sister and I were kids, we were asking uh, him some questions about that one day, and my sister had recently learned the word foreman, and she asked Grandpa, Grandpa, what, what does a foreman do? And I don't remember exactly what he said, but it was something to the effect of the foreman's the person that sits around and does nothing on a job site, which was a job that he had for a while, so I don't know how he knew that, but I'll just leave it at that. We've all seen or witnessed or experienced, we could all probably tell stories of someone misusing authority and power. They maybe get put in charge to lead a project or a company or a group of people to achieve some sort of purpose, but essentially they are just focused on themselves. And regardless of your personal opinions, regardless of your own stance, my guess is we have all been frustrated at some point or another with a politician changing their mind. 
that some scandal happens, someone on the other side of the political aisle does something and it is a crisis. We have to drop everything and deal with this immediately because this is a threat to our nation. We have to handle this immediately. And someone in their political party does the exact same thing. And, well, you know, it's not that big a deal. I mean, we can kind of sweep that under the rug and move on. We have probably all heard stories, been horrified by, by tales of scandal, organizations doing things completely out of line with their own values because they were ultimately more interested in protecting their own power than in doing what was right. Power is a reality created by God, designed to be a good thing, to lead to the flourishing of his creation as we partner with him. But it often gets used in inappropriate ways. And that's not something new to our own day. Things were essentially the same in the days of Jesus. The Roman Empire reigned supreme over all things, but, and Jesus comes into that world. But what we find in Jesus is not that he comes in and rejects power altogether, but he simply goes about power in a very different way. So what does Jesus have to say about power? And what might it have to teach us about living as God has intended for us to live? There's all sorts of teachings of Jesus we could pull out to try to sort out what Jesus thinks about power, but I think the best place we could go to try to answer that question is to look at the cross. And Jesus hanging on the cross is a situation where it sure seems like Jesus would have no power at all, but actually the more closely we look at this story, we're supposed to see something more. So we're going to look at John chapter 19 today. Starting at verse 28, if you have a Bible and want to open it up there, it might be helpful for you. We're going to make two passes through this section of Scripture today. I want to look at it once from the perspective of how our world tends to view power, and then I want to look at it a second time to see what Jesus and what John wants us to see in Jesus about power in this scene. So let me read this passage for us. John writes it later, knowing that Everything now had been finished, so that scripture would be fulfilled. Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so you also may believe. These things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. Crucifixion is perhaps the most demeaning and most brutal form of torture humanity has ever concocted. 
You are held in place by nails driven through your skin. You are left there to eventually suffocate, defenseless all the while against any insults or harm done to you by human beings or wildlife as you are there. This is a process that at times could last for days before you perish. So after a few hours of that, it makes sense that Jesus would be thirsty. And if you read all of the Gospels together, you notice that this is the second time since Jesus has been on the cross that the topic of a drink has come up. Uh, Matthew and Mark both tell us that earlier when Jesus is is first put on the cross, the soldiers offer him a wine mixed with either gall or myrrh or something like that, and he refuses to drink it. And it seems like what's happening there is that the soldiers are offering Jesus a drink that will, that will deaden his senses and numb the pain a little bit, and he refuses to drink it. This is a different moment where Jesus says he is thirsty, and so the soldiers offer him wine mixed with vinegar. And this is a drink for Roman soldiers for the lower classes of society. By all accounts, it tasted terrible, just in case you were planning on going home to make it this afternoon. But it would quench your thirst without making you sick. So they give Jesus a little bit of it by, by soaking a sponge in it, and then putting that sponge on, a, on the, uh, the stalk of a hyssop plant and lifting it up to his mouth. And we don't need to get into all the details, and I don't want to read too much into the text that is not there, but but while the soldiers do extend Jesus some grace here in this moment, there also is some humiliation that seems to be taking place. John doesn't go into detail, but, but soldiers typically kept sponges like this with them for sort of the ancient equivalent of toilet paper. So I'll just say that this is probably what a sponge like this would typically be used for and leave it at that. And this is how Jesus is given a drink. The one who had claimed to be living water. The one who had said that anyone who came to drink from him would never thirst again can only drink by having a dirty sponge soaked in wine vinegar shoved in his face. And after this, Jesus says, it is finished. Just one word, original language, and he dies. The one who claimed to be the eternal God has met his end. And this statement apparently happens without the knowledge of the Roman soldiers. They, they receive orders to speed these crucifixions along, to have them wrapped up before sundown, because otherwise they will be desecrating the Sabbath during the Passover. So they start to break the legs of those crosses. The only way to breathe when you're hanging on a cross is to lift yourself up by the nails holding you in place, and so if your legs are broken, that becomes harder to do, and you pass away more quickly. But when they come to Jesus, they find he's already died. Just to make sure, they put a spear into his side, and John tells us that blood and water flow out. And it's been documented by plenty of studies that when the body has gone through severe trauma, fluid can build up between the, the lungs and the body lining, and that seems to be what has happened here. And beyond a shadow of a doubt, Jesus of Nazareth has died. And from a worldly perspective, this would seem to be a tragic scene. I mean, you have a man in his early 30s that's supposed to be the prime of your life. He seems to have gotten on the wrong side of the authorities, found himself in the wrong place at the wrong time, and it has cost him his life. 
Pilate, the Roman governor, thought he was innocent but was willing to sacrifice him in the name of keeping the peace. The religious leaders saw him as a threat to their agendas and so they got rid of him. The Roman soldiers, experts in torture, game for an opportunity to humiliate some of their subjects. This scene is a statement to anyone who would see it. Anyone coming into Jerusalem for the Passover to celebrate this meal where God freed his people with maybe dreams in their own heads of maybe God will do that again and free us from the Roman Empire. Uh, This is a reminder of who is in control, who has power. And with all of that happening, Jesus would seem to be a hapless victim. I mean, maybe he's responsible for getting himself uh, in the crosshairs of of the religious leaders, but other than that, he just seems caught in the middle. He is a pawn in the games of the Sanhedrin and Pontius Pilate. He has been defended in their games of torture that all power taken away from him he was a teacher who did good he healed people he taught them about God's kingdom some people thought he was going to be the Messiah who was going to come and rule and restore God's people but now he has been crucified he's died humiliated along the way but John was there for all these events and and he seems to want us to see that there's a little more going on He makes this comment in verse 35 that I think is worth reading again. Speaking about himself, John says, The man who saw it, who saw Jesus die on the cross, has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. Whatever we might think we see when we look at the cross, John wants us to look again. Because he is not just a journalist reporting facts. He is not a historian making sure future generations have an accurate record. He has looked at this scene and believed. And he wants us to do the same. So what has John seen here that has made him believe? What does Jesus dying on the cross have to teach us about power? Well, let's look at this text one more time. First, I think we have to look at Jesus' thirst. Jesus does not say he is thirsty because he's at the end of his rope just begging for mercy. John says in verse 28 that he does this because everything had been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled. Jesus said, I am thirsty. John doesn't go into detail and tell us about a specific Old Testament passage he has in mind, but you can read through the Psalms and find places like Psalm 69, 21, where King David cries out to God to save him because he's being pursued by enemies. And he says, in the midst of everything that is happening, one of the things his enemies have done to him is they've made me drink vinegar, just as Jesus does on the cross. There's more to this scene than thirst. In some way, Jesus still seems to be fulfilling God's purposes. John mentions that the sponge soaked in wine is lifted up to Jesus on the stalk of a hyssop plant, which is maybe just a detail, but it's also the branch that gets used to spread the blood of the sacrificial lamb at the Passover. John doesn't seem to think it is an accident that the same branch used to cleanse the people of their sin shows up while Jesus hangs on the cross, which maybe tells us that there's more going on to this scene than just the end of a life when Jesus says, it is the specific word jesus says there can be used in lots of ways it can refer to a a task 
being completed. It can refer to something just coming to its end. It can refer to a prediction being fulfilled. It can refer to a debt that has been paid. And without trying to say more than is in the text, there seems to be elements of all of that happening as Jesus utters the word, it is finished. He's completed the task God gave him to do. His earthly life has come to its end. All the predictions made about him are being fulfilled. The debt of our sin is being paid. This is not an exasperated victim just stating that his life is over. This is a proclamation that even in his death, Jesus is doing the thing he has come to earth to do. And it doesn't even end after Jesus' heart stops beating. John tells us when the soldiers put the spear into his side, blood and water flow out, which maybe should call our mind back to a passage like John chapter 3, where Jesus told Nicodemus that anyone that wants to follow him needs to be born again through and spirit. Maybe it's supposed to remind us of John chapter 4, where Jesus is having a conversation with a Samaritan woman at the well. He says that he is bringing water that will lead to eternal life. Maybe it's supposed to remind us of John 7, verses 37 to 39, where Jesus says that anyone who believes in him would have rivers of living water flowing out of them. Maybe, just maybe, as blood and water flow out of his corpse on the cross, we see that the life we've been looking for is now available because Jesus' blood has been shed. Maybe we're not just supposed to remember the words of Jesus, but the words of the Old Testament as well. As John said, the soldiers do not break Jesus' legs. He remembers Exodus 12, 46, where God commanded the people that they were to prepare a lamb to eat for the Passover. And God said, when they did, the blood of a lamb whose bones had not been broken would save the people from their bondage. And now John looks at the one John the Baptist called the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world and sees that his bones are not broken and sees that his blood is being poured out so that his people might be free from sin. John's mind also goes to Zechariah 12, verse 10, which is maybe a little bit of an odd passage. If you flip back to the, verse, to the book of Zechariah and read that verse within its context, it's a little bit of an odd scene because there is this figure speaking, and the figure sure sounds like God, but as they are speaking, they tell this this proclamation that one day they are going to be pierced, and when that happens, all of God's people will mourn. And if you just read that on its own, maybe I'm just speaking for myself, but there's a part of me that thinks, how would you even pierce God? God is spirit. How would someone even go about doing anything like that? But now, as John sees the one who claimed to be God in the flesh, hanging on a cross with a spear thrust into his side, Zechariah 12 starts to make sense. As you keep reading, you get to Zechariah 13, verse 1, the same passage, the same figure is speaking, and they say, on that day, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. This strange portrait from the prophet of Zechariah of this figure speaking as God being pierced, which somehow cleanses the people of their sin, has been fulfilled in Jesus. He's given up his life so that his people might be made new. From the perspective of how our world tends to operate, the death of Jesus is a tragedy. 
but John wants us to see that there is more going on. Jesus might appear to be a victim, going all the way back to when this mob showed up to arrest him the night before in the Garden of Gethsemane, but he has remained in control the entire time. He has not deviated from his mission for one second. He has been arrested, tried, flogged, and crucified so that the purposes of God might be fulfilled, even in the way in which he has died. He has purposefully acted to fulfill Scripture. He's not a failure. He's not a victim. He has not had all power stripped from him. He's the Son of God who has come to demonstrate what true power looks like. He held authority over all things, yet he did not hold on to it for his own sake. He gave it up for us. Jesus' greatest demonstration of power comes in him completely giving up his power for us. And it's when we look at Jesus hanging on the cross, blood and water pouring from his side, that we begin to understand what true power looks like. Because Jesus died in the same way that he lived. He came preaching a message of love and service that would transform the world. He said our problem was not you've got the wrong people in charge and you need to put me in charge and then all your problems will go away. His his message was that we have a misguided approach to power altogether because power was never supposed to be something to be hoarded by one person or one small group of people and maintained at all costs. It was something to be used for the sake of others. It was, it was something designed to bring life instead of death. It was something designed to build others up instead of tearing others down. It was something to be used to turn enemies into friends through forgiving love. It was something that was to transform the world from the inside out. And that is the message Jesus came proclaiming. And it is the message he embodies perfectly in his death. When he could have protected himself, he did not. When his followers ran away and hid, he stayed the course. When he could have fought for his release, he stayed for our sake. When he could have used his power himself, he used it for us to complete the task he came to this earth to do so that we might be set free from our sin and redeemed into life with God. And that is the power of Jesus that brings transformation. Through his blood being poured out, through his body hung on the cross, through him giving up his life for us, we find the life we glimpse just in shadows in this life. The eternal life we were made for is available because Jesus gave up his power for us. The powers of our world are shown now in the same way they were in Jesus' day. Rome maintained its power through force and death. Do what we say or we will punish you or take away your life. And powers maintain the same way today through enforcement, through those in charge, keeping those they are ruling over under their thumb. But the power of Jesus shown most clearly on the cross is different. Jesus introduces us to a power that triumphs over death in his death and resurrection when he defeats death and any power that would want to use death as a weapon forever as he leads us into new life with him. And if you don't follow Jesus this morning, I'm glad you're here. And I hope you can see that this is the power Jesus holds. I can understand the idea of saying that Jesus rules over all things. He has complete control over my life. That might sound a little off-putting. And if that's the reaction we have, we should look at how Jesus uses his power. Because he uses it for others. He uses it for us. 
so that we might experience the life he desires for us. And that understanding of what power is and how it is used is very different from how power tends to work in our world. Because we know that power is used for the sake of others, it creates life. When I was growing up, my grandpa Merle had one older brother that was really still around that I was able to get to know, my uncle Carl. And he was older and not really able to do much by the time I was around, but I could always tell that my Uncle Carl and my Grandpa Merle were very close and that my grandpa had a lot of love and respect for his older brother. And I might have been told about it somewhere along the way and just forgot it because I was a kid and not paying attention, but it was years after they had both passed away, about five years after my grandpa had passed away, about ten years after my Uncle Carl had passed away, that I was reading some family history and I came across a story when my grandpa was eight years old, he was sick. And his mom was taking care of him, but she just thought he had the flu, had a fever, something like that. She had sent him to bed, told him to rest, thought it was going to be okay. And his older brother, my Uncle Carl, was worried. He thought something else was wrong. And so he disobeyed his mother, which I'm sure took some guts. And he took his younger brother to the hospital. And when they got there, the doctors discovered my grandpa had a ruptured appendix and needed surgery immediately. And it was a very real possibility that if my grandpa had just been kept at home, he would have died. But because my Uncle Carl stepped in, my grandpa was healed, and I don't think my grandpa ever forgot about that as long as he lived. And that's the way Jesus comes to us. He uses his power for our sake. And if we truly understand and experience that truth, it will transform us. If you've never experienced that for yourself, we as a church would love to walk alongside you so that you could know the power of Jesus in your life as you experience the love he displayed and giving up his life so that you might have life. That is what he uses his power to accomplish. And if you are a follower of Jesus already, this is the power he sends us out with. He does not do all this for us and hand it to us and say, here, enjoy what I have done for you. He sends us out to use whatever power we might have in our homes, in our families, our neighborhoods, our work, our church, for the sake of others, to bring the hope of restoration and new creation to a hurting world. I don't know about each and every one of you, but I feel confident that to some degree or another, each and every one of us have an area of life where we have authority, where we have power, even if we wouldn't use those terms for it. And if not, you're in a season of life where you're preparing for the day where you will. And whatever that looks like for you, you can fill in the blank for yourself. Jesus calls you to use that power that God has entrusted to you in the same way that he used his power for the sake of others. In every area of life, may we be people that use power the way Jesus did and give up ourselves so that others might have life with God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this story of the gospel that we get a glimpse of in this scene right here in John 19 as Jesus gives up his life for our sake. We thank you that when we were sinners, when we had rebelled against you, Jesus came to us to offer himself in our place, to take the punishment we deserve for our sins so that we might instead have 
life. We thank you for how he has done that and modeled that throughout his entire life and ministry and invites us into the same calling. So God, we come before you this morning asking that you would mold us more and more deeply into this image. Whether it's for the first time of stepping into this life with you or taking it more seriously than we have before, applying it in some specific area of life, God, we want to be people who've been transformed by the way Jesus has used his power so that we might use whatever power you entrust to us in the same way. So give us wisdom to know what that looks like. Give us boldness to act on what you reveal to us. Give us the humility to know that you are with us as we do so. That you fill us with the hope that we have of life with you. We call us in your son's name. Amen. We hope that you were encouraged and challenged by this message given by our own senior pastor, Monty French. Thank you.